From the New York offices of Oxford University Press, this is the Oxford Comment, a monthly podcast featuring insights from Oxford University Press authors, editors, and more. My name is Sarah, multimedia producer and your host for this episode. This episode of the Oxford Comment is the first of a two-part feature, focusing on the art world and multisensory art pieces. The basis for this two-parter is a roundtable discussion we hosted here at the New York offices with several distinguished guests and OUP staff. I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Kathy Batista. I'm the editor-in-chief of Benazit Dictionary of Artists. Um, I'm also the director of the MA program at Sotheby's Institute of Art, where I teach um, and lead a program about um, art since uh, the post-war period for a group of postgraduate students, which is... um, keeps me going, keeps me on my toes, and um, I'm very excited to be here with Julie Martin and Robert Whitman, two people whose work I admire and I've had the honor of working with and getting to know very well when I curated a retrospective of experiments in art and technology, which Julie was the president of and which Bob was the founder of. So Julie Martin, uh, I've worked for many years with uh, experiments in art and technology, um, and got my start in art working actually with Bob Whitman uh, on a series of performances he did at the Circle in the Square. I was what might now be called stage manager, which was uh, sweeping up broken glass and other things. So I've, I've known and worked with Bob for many years. What year did you meet? Well, I, I saw the American Moon in 1960, yeah, okay. 1960, and then mm-hmm. I worked in 66. Okay, Bob Whitman. And, uh, <laughs> I say, I really don't know what I do. I'd like to do something else. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can say that Bob is a um, very esteemed artist and maker of theater works. Maybe we can talk Mm. about that, what you call your work, and was part of a founding generation of artists, including Clay Soldenberg, Jim Dine, Red Grooms, who created Happenings. During this first part, I'm going to explore a few of Robert Whitman's projects. Well, before I did that, I quickly looked him up in the Benazit Dictionary of Artists. The facts are these. Robert Whitman is an American artist best known for his theater pieces, theatrical installations involving actors within settings comprising papier-mâché animals, plastic curtains, loudspeakers broadcasting cacophonous soundtracks, spotlights, and film projections. In 1966, he took part in nine nights of theater and engineering, which was organized by Experiments in Art and Technology, a group of artists, performers, engineers, and scientists who collaborated to produce work featuring the latest developments in optical effects, lasers, and ultrasound. But I was also really interested to hear about Local Report, a project that Bob has produced several iterations of. Local Report consists of live performances during which participants were asked to use video cell phones to send images and audio from their communities. This performance was also transformed into a multi-screen video and sound installation. Since I had had to find this stuff out recently, I remember that in 1972 I did a piece in Manhattan for a radio program that was on WBAI, you know, to make a radio program. So I did, and it was sending people around the city with change and calling into the radio station from pay phones around the city. Now, they were scattered around the city in those days and they were easy to find. There were pay phones all over the place. And uh, so people went around the city to spots that I picked out 
and walked, let's say, made the first call, and made a second call, made a third call. Uh, so we had 30 people making three calls. That's 90 calls in a half an hour, uh, about 20 seconds each. So you end up, and I had them say, say where they were when they made each call. People who are used to listening to the radio, which is very common in 1972, uh, could visualize these spots around the city and where these calls were coming from and get a kind of a, a map of what was happening at that, during that half hour in, in, in Manhattan. So I did a bunch of these. I did one in Milwaukee, at, uh, in St. Paul, and I did one in Houston. And sometimes, you know, you hear a fire engine and then the next call comes from someplace else and the same fire yes. engine is going by that same guy, you know, yeah. it's, a, it's a few blocks away. Yeah. Uh, so this idea uh, continued uh, in a, other incarnations with people using cell phones some years later, then, fi uh, the, then finally using video phones. But when you get into other things, it's more complicated. So you ha and also you have to place to store this stuff when it comes in. So I, let's see, when the, when the project was uh, originated, I was lucky enough to meet an IT person at NYU whose name is Sean Van Every, uh, who understood the kind of political implications of this kind of piece immediately. So he looked, me, looked at me and he said, you've come to the right guy. And uh, so Sean made these this stuff and also the ability to store the material and line it up and present it. So uh, when the visual stuff comes in, it, it gets stacked up and then presented for its 20 seconds and then keeps looping. And it's still probably floating around there in the ether somewhere. And the last one of these that I did was uh, in 90 places around the world. 90? 90? Well, we tried. Okay. <laughs> we still one of the 90 reports. And the cool thing is you get to, so they, they, the instructions are, you listen to the hold music, and then when the hold music stops, you go. You make your report. Uh, in the early days, I think, I don't know if we had to cue people saying they're on the radio or not. I can't remember. I'm, I was wondering that, if people had a time slot to call in. Yes, they did. Because you'd run out of your quarter when you call in. No, you call in, you call in during, as you spend five minutes walking from place to place, and then five minutes trying to get through. Okay. So there was no hold in those early ones. You just okay. waited till you got through uh, and made the report. So random. Well, that's what's cool. It was luck. So local report, it's a video that they're shooting. The that's news, right. they're they doing use, by they video. Do they do both. They use video and verbal. Oh, I know what I was going to mention. So the cue was to send, send the report when the hold music stopped. And so since we could pick our own whole music, I used uh, Terry Riley. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. Did you have to get permission from Terry Riley, or is that just... Uh, we took it. Okay. Uh, and, and Terry's an old dear friend. Oh, so... So I wouldn't... Uh, and I think when we told him, he thought it was I great. Did, yeah, <laughs> I think so. I think he, we, he, he got to know that that was happening. And that piece, it started out as being called news, and then the, the other iterations are local reports. Yeah, yeah, it was a news program. And local reports, the same difference, pretty much. And do you ever get things that are, I mean, I guess you can't control the content coming in. No. It could be crazy, it could be banal. Yes, but you'd be surprised how poetic most of it is. Interesting. Uh, it's really true. Uh, 
it's just if you catch people being natural and they're not pretentious, that's the danger. Most people are not used to making a 20-second report, and they don't realize how much time that is. So they're, they're thinking, their thinking is a little too quick for them to start uh, getting pretentious. You know, because they want to get it. Oh, there's a window over there, and it's half, and the shutter is uh, halfway down, and then one's next to it, or three quarters of the way down. You know, that's the kind of stuff, and that's beautiful because you can visualize that. Yeah, uh, it's interesting because it sort of takes your earlier theater work where you had participants, and mm-hmm. the audience would sometimes be involved or walk through the installations. They might walk through, but uh, I'm not an audience participation guy. Um, I don't like giving people orders. Okay. But local report is kind of a that sort of bridges the gap. So and you do get unexpected results. Let's listen to a few audio samples from local report in 2005. One airplane is being taxied out from the airport, which is where I am, while another small one is being rolled in. It's a beautiful windy day out here. Um, lovely airplane, broken glass, uh, black top. We're here at the uh, local bar talking to the pilots who are all sitting around drinking, having a great time. There's a dog in the doorway watching a fly outside. There's a lovely lady behind the bar. And it's a warm, sunny day, and it seems to be a lot cooler here inside. It's apparently an old farmhouse. I'm at St. Michael's uh, Cemetery, and I'm looking at a tombstone that's tilting. Uh, The name is Mary Carroll, died in 1889 on December 27th. The uh, design, it looks like it's been just uh, washed away with all the rain and weather. and It's kind of a rosy red granite. Uh, she died at age 48 years old. There are leaves visible on the bottom of the tombstone. I guess technically I just remixed Local Report since it was originally paired with video, but if you visit www.whitmanlocalreport.net, that website has visuals to go along with these audio sound clips. The conversation in the roundtable then turned back to the production process for Local Report. So Sean, uh, he worked at that for the, on the first one with, with uh, Hans Christoph Steiner, who did the sound part. So and they they did not only the Sean... Um, program a Nokia, one of the first Nokia um, Hmm. video phones, Mm -hmm. so that with one or two buttons you could take 20 seconds of video and with one more button it got sent to this back to the uh, space and then played one after another as it came in and with the sound the same as you the person called and Bob would listen to it. That was live, that was live and so when he felt they had made an image, so to speak. He would go on to the next call, and those were recorded and then played and looped. But what really is ex- interesting is that when we first started to do the local report with video, he thought 
he was making a very tight schedule about, well, three people, and, and you know, because on radio you can't have dead time. So he had to have the people call, you know, even yes. though they were waiting to call, it, one call came right after another. But finally realized that with the video and then kind of storing it in, storing the images in the computer, then having the computer play them, he didn't have to, uh, didn't have to uh, have it a strict time. Yeah, that's a, so it's a, it's a hard, it's a strange, uh, it's a strange sort of, I don't know what you call it, ambient world to try, to try and have the form. It would almost provide in the con a, a world where people can generate imagery that's that you have no control over. That's the, that's the ideal. Uh, but you know, with the conventional theater pieces, they're scripted, and there are elements of possibilities that are out of my control in a lot of the pieces. But when you're doing that sort of thing, it's 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 almost it's it's a different level of something that's too hard. But if you're doing these kind of communication pieces. Uh, you can't tell. You can, but you can provide the world with where those things can exist, and the chance that something will be remarkable. When the stuff is fed in and it's showing in the gallery, mm -hmm. there are multiple screens. Typically, yeah. Okay, so it's kind of unedited, just put up. Oh yeah, up totally there. unedited. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But it you is treat unedited. the sound a little bit differently, don't you? Well, the, the, the actual reports gets, as I say, get stacked up and and. It, in the beginning, when I got the phone report, I cut them off as soon as they had made an image uh, and gone on to the next one. And I think maybe that's what I did the last time. I can't, you know, I, mm -hmm. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's no need. And also, we let the piece start before it begins and end after it stops. So st stuff still comes in, uh, which is kind of nice. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, if you, if you present them in a certain way, this, the sound, the verbal description, and the video uh, projection, the video images, are never synced. Mm -hmm. And because they're, they're a different time, as, the, as these things are looped, the verbal part will always, not always, but it will move around and be associated with another visual part. And it'll just keep moving around, and which is a nice way of having everything be relevant to everything else. I heard the name Sean Van Every a few times over the course of this conversation. Sean is a professor at ITP, which stands for Interactive Telecommunications Program, a two-year graduate degree program at Tisch School of the Arts. I got a chance to speak with Sean and ask him about his involvement with Local Report. I was a pretty new researcher in the program that I work with at NYU. Uh, I was one year out of school. I, I, I think I was introduced to Bob through another artist named Sue Werbiken, who I worked with in a professional setting previously. And we had kept in touch, and she thought I might be a good person for Bob to talk to. So I think this was 2005. Uh, and Bob had been doing a series of, uh, he called them telecommunications projects, and Local Report was one of them. Um, and then in 2005, he wanted to redo it but he wanted to use um, video as well. Some of the earliest sort of camera phones had come out and video capabilities uh, were just starting to emerge. We formed a partnership with Nokia, uh, who I had a relationship with um, here at NYU, but this was a separate relationship. 
and they donated, I think it was 30 handsets uh, for us to use for this project. And we had some, I believe, some sponsorship from Verizon as well. And so we got service on the phones. And I wrote some software that enabled uh, the phones to record video and send it as fast as possible to a server that we had that we had developed and, and actually took with us um, to each location that we did the local report. Uh, and we also had a voice over IP service so people could make a phone call and be sort of uh, put into like a queue and then play their, their their voice audio live into the space. So the local report became this performance where we where we sent out twenty to thirty local people in a community, and they shot uh, short videos. It was twenty or thirty seconds on their phones, and sent them to us um, as fast as they could. And then they they called and they delivered a voice report of what they saw or what they see uh, at in real time, and all of this played in in that space in the space that um, we had for each report. And I think we did five venues over the course of once of the summer. I worked with another uh, artist technologist named Hans Christoph Steiner. And, and we divided the work basically into two pieces. I worked on the mobile phone application and the video, and he worked on the audio, uh, the real-time audio uh, interface. I think initially it was really getting a sense of what Bob wanted, you know, meeting with him quite a bit and meeting with Julie Martin quite a bit and other people that were working on the project. And then we built, you know, we built initial versions of it, of all of the software um, the playback software, the phone software, did a lot of testing, and then you know went back to the drawing board a few times to work on the user experience and you know make it make it work. But you know it was it was interesting just to like be in a community and see how much uh, there is you know that's the same about each place. You know everybody has sort of their own little stories about their place, uh, you know where they live and their their inside knowledge, and I think. Local report almost became um, a way for them to show other people that, and so that that was really nice. I really liked that aspect of it, and I like that it's this. It it became this sort of collage of audio video that didn't necessarily match together. And I really liked working with Bob. He he really um, he kind of wanted to see just where other people took it, right? So he would lay this framework, and and then he would be a in, in some sense as a director, but he would allow the participants to also do shoot what they wanted to shoot, talk about what they wanted to talk about. And it was choreographed, but it was with, you know, there was some improvisation and, and that I, I, I really respect. And I thought that was, the result was very interesting. Because people were, were sending you video. What was the technological ca- capacity for that in 2005? Was that difficult to, to manage? Yeah, it was, yeah. It was very difficult. It, um, uh, the devices could only uh, shoot very small video um, and pretty low resolution. Uh, we really had to try to make it as simple as possible because people weren't used to using apps on their phones, right? Um, and they weren't touchscreen, right? So they had you know, regular hard button interfaces. And, and so there was a lot of work to train people how to use it and then teach people you know, how to sort of be patient with the video upload process 
mm-hmm. um, because the network bandwidth wasn't there either. So, so sending the video could sometimes take a while. And if people were driving around or, you know, like they would lose connectivity and then it would have to start, start over again. Whereas the next version in 2012, it really didn't require training. People were much more familiar with how to use software on their phones. It was for iOS and for Android. They, we didn't have to worry about the bandwidth nearly as much um, and stuff like that. So it was much easier from the user perspective. Sean made a really interesting comparison here from Local Report in 2005 to Local Report in 2012, which featured voices and video from all over the world. I asked Sean about more differences between 2005 and 2012. In 2005, it was all, you know, everything was taking place about the same time of day. In 2012, it, were, you know, it was morning in some places, it was night in other places, it was afternoon in some places. And so you saw this snapshot of the world over the course of this hour. And of course, the, the technology was much different as well. So, you know, the software was, I guess it was easier to write. I pretty much did it myself. I had an intern um, from Stanford uh, who worked on the iOS version. Um, and he basically built the iOS version. I built the Android version. Um, and then I also built the servers and um, playback infrastructure. We have so many options, you know, Snapchat and Twitter, and like you could just, you know, do that yes. on your own. And yeah, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about that. Or I think people get stuck in the idea of broadcasting to the world using the internet and and mobile devices and and you know websites like Twitter and and Snapchat and Periscope, or they use it for sort of one to one communication, right? Like text messaging to one person or phone call with one person without the constraints on distance that physical media had, local becomes harder, right? So, you know, with newspapers, the distribution mechanism was, you know, physical paper. So, and you couldn't instantly transport it around the world. But with these devices, like it it can go, it can go worldwide immediately. And so local has a different connotation, I think, right? We have to sort of artificially impose a local constraint. And, and that's, I don't know, that's difficult to wrap, wrap around. And I think that this piece speaks to that a little bit, right? It's, it's almost as if global is now local. Now that we regularly broadcast live video feeds, it will be interesting to discover what direction local report will take in the future. It sounds like Bob has plans for a new piece that utilizes smartphones. And the piece that I'm working on now uh, will include some of the elements of stuff that I've done in the past. Some sound moving around the space. Uh, but also, I want to send people out in the town to easily, easily recognizable spots. Every city has a bunch of spots like that that everybody will know what they are. And the people that I'm going to send out will have smartphones with an application that lets them take the movie of whatever it is that they find in this place. They're gonna have them, I'm going to have them kind of look around and find, find something there. You know, like some, some piece of clothing. And um, do this in about uh, you know, eight, eight or ten spots in the city, maybe more. These images will be sent back in, to performance space and played and then replayed, you know, like in a loop. 
and then later on in the performance people will come in will come into the space and work on the piece wearing the clothes that got found in the city uh, so that that's an that's kind of an example of a piece that hasn't happened are you are you intending it for New York City then no this is for London all right so we'll see we'll see listen we'll see it all <laughs> remains to be seen yes uh, and I like the idea also of the possibility that the thing will be out of control and we'll have to deal with the unanticipated uh, disasters and, and get unanticipated results. Our guests also discussed more of Robert Whitman's pieces, including a very recent one called Swim. Swim was performed in 2015 and involved a multi-sensory experience. The conversation started when Kathy mentioned a performative element in Bob's work. You always had a kind of long-standing relationship with performance, and now your work, I would say still, well, you're still making some performances, things like Swim and Local Report, Mm -hmm. but even the artworks, um, like the Soundies, have a performative element to them. Would you say that's true? That's for you guys to say, you know. I don't (laughs) talk about my stuff that much, but I will, I'll, I'll just talk briefly about the Swim piece, which I did in reaction to Jed Wheeler, who's a producer at Montclair State, or the Kasser Theater, uh, who asked me if I could do a piece that would be accessible for blind people. And I said, sure. (laughs) What a good idea that is. Well, you know, it's because, number one, I didn't know any blind people. And I didn't know anybody who did, which is really strange. So I said, you know, is that my isolation or theirs? or whatever it is. So <clears throat> I was lucky enough to know somebody who teaches at Cooper Union and had heard about a blind student there who had gone blind about three quarters of the way through her program at Cooper, which is basically visual arts. And uh, so he arranged a meeting. And of course, I had a chance to meet this young lady who's absolutely remarkable. That's Emily? Emily Gossio, that's Gossio. her name, yeah. So I had a, a meeting with her, and uh, you know, the, the good thing about anything like this is you get a good kick in the assumptions. So I, we had a chat, and I told her a little bit about what the piece was. She was exceedingly helpful in a certain way, uh, like, number one, authenticating the, the work that I was involved in, what I was doing, the script. Uh, and also letting me know stuff that I didn't have to do. And the stuff that I didn't have to do, you don't have to do that for sighted people. They're going to get it anyway. In other words, I had stuff in there for sighted people uh, that they could have perfectly well apprehended uh, with the sounds. So uh, that was interesting. Now, the the other thing was we were having lunch, and um, I wanted to talk about the program. Uh, And so I had read her the menu parts that she was interested in and then continued on the discussion about the program. So I said, do you think we should do part of the program in Braille? So she goes, oh no, we don't use Braille so much anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I said, oh. I said, "Uh, yeah, I can can take a picture of the menu with my smartphone and it'll read it to me. Okay, that's what I'm talking about, being kicked in the assumptions, you know. Oh, really? Wow. Which also was her way of telling me that I could have perfectly well given her the script. <laughs> you know, but she's so discreet yeah. and, and, and circumspect, you know, so, so she's such a cool character. Yeah, she gave a, 
a little introductory talk in front of one or two of the performances of this piece uh, for people who are coming to the piece. And uh, of course, she said when I was born, and I, told her, I said, Emily, for God's sake, you didn't have to tell him how old I was. <laughs> you know? Oh, she introduced you as well. Like, she introduced the piece, but she, gave, like, a little bio about you. Yes. Oh, that was sweet. <laughs> right. So, when I heard about Emily Gassio's involvement in the piece, I wanted to speak with her as well. Emily is a contractual museum educator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and an artist based here in the city. I called her up one evening, and we talked a bit about SWIM. Well, Bob got in contact with me through one of my <clears throat> sound art professors from Cooper Union. And I was a senior at Cooper Union at the time when we met. Um, he was looking for someone like me who was blind and is also an artist or has experience with visual arts. We met at a cafe, and he told me about SWIM and his project and all his ideas, and I really loved all of his ideas, and I I wanted, I told him I'd help him any way I could, so, because I was so enthusiastic about his, I guess his project being multi-sensory and geared towards making a piece of, that would be that could be enjoyed by somebody who is blind or somebody who is sighted, you know. So, yeah, I became the consultant. Bob would ask me questions like, like, how would I experience this? How could it be better? I had a lot of meetings with Bob and with his colleague, Julie Martin. And it was a lot of fun working together. I experienced the the piece three times and every time I experienced it it was just really beautiful and like every time it was better than the last time I felt like I was experiencing something new each time I attended the performance. Was there like uh, any like particular moments that stood out to you when you were ex experiencing the piece? Yeah there was oh my gosh my favorite moment was the transition between the laundry machines being pulled out onto the stage and the sound of the washer and the and the clothes being in the water and the machine running making that gurgling water sound and then a transition into the I forgot what it's called the machine that reads your heartbeat and you can hear the sound transition from the gurgling water sound to the kind of like this gurgling slow pace of a heart beating. And then I thought it was um, beautiful the way he chimed in with his granddaughter singing her song, Echo. Oh, that's what it was. The machine was called Echocardiogram. And I just thought that was such a beautiful a beautiful transition and every time I noticed that I experienced a performance I would smell something different too like something that I didn't smell the last time so I remember the first time I didn't really get to s the smell of the bleach or the the um the chlorine smell and then the but I smelled it the last time and it was just yeah it was a really moving piece for me yeah. <laughs> Yeah. 
How how long was was the was it a different length each time or? No, it felt like the same every time. Yeah. yeah. And what do you think is the uh, the significance of a multi-sensory piece like swim? A lot of what I do at the Met is I I teach classes for people who are visually impaired, but I also give guided tours for audiences who are sighted and have vision. And what I like to do with the sighted audiences is I try to give them <clears throat> an experience other than just going to the gallery and looking at art and it being just strictly visual, you know, because I feel like we kind of limit ourselves when we only focus on what we're looking at in a gallery or an artwork or a painting or a sculpture. So I try to ask them, you know, when you look at this painting, what do you smell? Or when you look at the sculpture, try describing it and what maybe like looking at it more closely, you'll notice something new or different about it, something you didn't notice before. And I think that with Robert's, with Bob's piece, Swim, not just it being like opening the doors for, you know, blind and visually impaired people to experience something unique, but also for sighted people to kind of think about what's going on with this, what they're experiencing, like the smells and the sound and the visuals and all these things are can make great responses. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I really, I really enjoyed that element of it. The conversation then turned towards Emily's own work. I took a sound art class at Cooper when I was a senior, and I incorporated sound, but I also used the the tactile, like the tangibility of sound, like how sound, you can feel sound, you don't just, you can't just hear it, you can also be felt, so I like to use bass shakers in my sound projects so people could feel what they're hearing, or even like sometimes they wouldn't even be able to hear it, they'd only be able to feel the sound and experience the sound that way through touch. And my, another piece that I did I call it spaghetti night because what I did was I made um, over a hundred bowls out of ceramic and then I made over a hundred forks out of wood and I made a huge vat of spaghetti and I had people come in to the show and I would serve people spaghetti in the bowls that I made and the forks that I made. And after they finished eating out of the bowls, they would go up to these big water basins that I also made out of ceramic, and they would wash their bowls and clean it. So it would kind of be like a big um, community that I created in the gallery space for people to recycle and reuse the, the bowls and the forks and to kind of like to help each other, you know, by washing the bowls and serving people. It was a lot of fun. Um, so there is like taste and smell and touch. I, I really like my audience being able to touch my sculptures. So that was a really, that was an important part of the piece too. Because each bowl was made so differently. 
Yeah, no, yeah, that sounds like a really, um, I want to say like rich experience just because of like all the details you put into it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it kind of all just, it really just made sense. You know, I didn't have to tell anybody what they needed to do. They just walked into the gallery, saw the bowls, saw the forks, saw me standing next to a pot of spaghetti. (laughs) And it just happened. It was, it was fun. Back at the roundtable discussion in our offices, Robert Whitman had to take off, and the conversation turned towards experiments in art and technology. In next month's episode, I'll be exploring the history of EAT, and we'll hear more from Julie Martin about it. Thank you to our guests this episode, Robert Whitman, Julie Martin, Kathy Batista, who's the editor-in-chief of the Benazit Dictionary of Artists, And you can check out Benazit Dictionary of Artists and Grove Dictionary of Art at OxfordArtOnline.com. Sean Van Every, professor at ITP, which you can check out at tisch.nyu.edu slash ITP. Emily Gossio, you can check out her website at www.emiliegossiaux.com. And thank you for listening. More episodes of the Oxford Comment can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and, as always, on the OUP blog. And if you'd like to contribute to the conversation, please feel free to leave us a comment. Until next time, friends.